In a time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to another mini-sode of the Feelin' Film podcast. Joining me for this show is Josh Crabb, editor, writer, and podcaster with Real World Theology. I believe this is the first time that Josh and I have had the opportunity to record together, so I'm pretty excited about that. The movie we'll be discussing today is Barry Jenkins' Moonlight, a story of human connection and self-discovery about a young black man struggling to grow up in a neighborhood that does not always accept him. This film is already drawing a lot of awards buzz and is one of the most emotionally powerful movies 2016 has to offer. This podcast will spoil the film, so if you're listening now and have not seen it yet, we highly encourage you to go out, watch the movie, and then come back and listen afterward. Josh, I'm really grateful that you reached out and wanted to have a conversation about this movie. So I gotta ask you, just to kick this thing off, what made you so excited and so interested in having this conversation? Well, hey, thanks for having me on the show, Aaron. Oh, yeah, no, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. I, I'm just glad you were wanting to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that the reason I want to talk about it is, I mean, first of all, I think uh, you and I might be the only ones of our, our circle and group that have actually seen this movie. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely not so. many. No, there's really not, which is surprising given how well it's done at the box office compared to most other independent films. But, um, you know, I really want to get a chance to talk about this film for, I mean, I, a myriad of different reasons, just because when you love a movie, you want to talk about it. Um, but I think that this movie has a lot of really important things to say. And I finally think that we have a film that both speaks to, uh, different minority experiences in America, uh, current modern America that is a lot better than like uh, the birth of a nation, which I think generated a lot of really great discussion, uh, but wasn't necessarily the best film as far as like the technical aspects and everything like that. And plus the, the emotional impact was not nearly as profound as it was in Moonlight. So I think that Moonlight is an opportunity to get to talk about some of those things in a movie that you can just be like, you don't have to be like, well, you know, but this was kind of bad or this wasn't that great or this could have been better, that kind of thing. This movie all around was fantastic and has some of the best performances from actors uh, this year and also has a lot of really great uh, um, influences that Barry Jenkins cites uh, that go back to uh, some of the filmmakers that I really enjoy. Well, so those good. are just some of the, some of the reasons that I want to talk about it. That's a, that's a long list. And that's, um that's what makes a movie great. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, I agree. I thought I was surprised actually at how many people had not gotten around to seeing this one. And I wonder if the content of it is a turnoff to people, uh, those that know about it, or if maybe it just wasn't marketed in a way that, you know, got people into the seats in the theater, at mm-hmm. least those that we know. But mm-hmm. um, like you, I I rushed out to see it simply because of the critical buzz about it. I, I had to know what this was all about. Uh, I had had uh, one friend on Twitter who had seen it, and I, was, I asked him about it, and he's like, dude, go go see it. Go see it tomorrow. Just, just go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I said, okay, okay. 
And so I got to frame my experience a little bit because when I went to the theater for this one, it was only playing in a little indie theater here in Seattle. It's a Sundance theater, one of uh, mm. Robert Redford's line. And it was an afternoon showing about, I think, 2 o'clock, one thirty, two o'clock. And it was me and about eight elderly folks um, <laughs> that I, I, I kid you not, none of them were under 70. No, I, I honest to be completely honest with you, I had almost the exact same experience. Wow. I, I didn't I didn't go to a Sundance theater, though. I love those theaters. They have one in Madison, which is about two hours away from me. Um, just as a little bit of context, I'm in Appleton, which is near Green Bay. Oh, OK, so. Um, oh, that's bad. We're doing this at the wrong time. <laughs> I was going to say, I wonder if that would be brought up at all. That oh. the, the Seahawks worst loss in in almost half a decade comes at the hands of green bay and it just happened yesterday thank, yesterday. thank goodness i have the edit button <laughs> yeah nice <laughs> well that's awesome yeah so exactly and it's, it's very interesting to me with movies like this what that theater makeup is like and i also would say i had no african americans in my theater oh um, yeah i did have some minorities but there were no african americans and i just found that very very interesting <laughs> that the people going to see this movie at least at the time i did were not uh, the ones that were being represented in the film. Yeah, no, I really think that, um, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't have a city that's particularly uh, diverse. Um, you know, Appleton, I mean, is about 70,000 people. And I mean, it's a little bit on the diverse side. We have a bit more of like the, the Hmong population in our area of the Midwest, but yeah, I mean, they're just, there, there was only, and I've, I've had this experience a lot of times when I go to independent theaters for some reason, is I seem to be the youngest person there, and um, usually the elderly people that are there ask me to explain the movie to them afterwards. <laughs> so, <laughs> not to say that an elderly person can't understand it, but I think that honestly, like, they're going because they're, they have had a movie, you know, they grew up when going to the movies was the thing you did, you know, mm -hmm. like you would go out and movies were your main experience. Um, I mean, I would say even up until like the 80s was probably, you know, movies were the thing that you did on a Friday night or a Saturday night or even like during the week. And so, um, you know, I think that this movie was um, an incredible opportunity for a lot of people who may not necessarily see or experience anything like this. Uh, that happens in this movie to be able to experience that. And so I think that's really super cool. Yeah, I do as well. And, you know, I, I came out of this film with a very, very raw reaction to it. I was not prepared for what I was going to see, frankly. And I, I don't know that anyone was when they first saw it because you just don't know enough about it. I mean, the synopsis doesn't give us the anywhere near the the depth of what you're about to to feel oh ab absolutely not <laughs> and so i remember coming out of it and you know having a very very hard inward conversation with myself uh based on beliefs based on um you know how i have seen people in my life treated in the past based on you know what i saw represented on screen uh, that felt very real to me and just what it meant, what it meant to be compassionate, what it meant to uh, to grow up in this type of environment that they were displaying in front of me, and how that that could impact a person's life, and how and frankly how blessed you know I have been. Sometimes we 
as we are both, uh, you know, the the stereotypical <laughs> we're the white males, right? Who oh yeah are, are the ones who can't complain, and um, you know, the pendulum is swung, and a lot of a lot of times people are like, hey, you know, well, what about me? All you know, my white my white life matters too, and we <laughs> don't really understand what sometimes people have gone through as a culture. And like you were saying, I think this captures it in a modern day setting better than anything I've ever seen. Uh, it's just, it's so, so, so visceral um, yeah. and, and impactful. Where do you really, I mean, what do we want to start with? Do we want to talk about stereotypes? Because I think that that's something that is really important to me in this film is the way in which it, breaks these stereotypes specifically mm-hmm. with the character of Juan, uh, who yep. you know has to be my favorite character in the film um i'm i'd wager that he's probably a lot of people's favorite character uh played by oh goodness do you know how to pronounce his name uh no okay <laughs> Ma- you'll be taking as good a guess as me Ma- maharsharla ali I believe, or something similar to that. He plays Remy Danton in, uh, yeah, that was pretty good. Plays Remy Danton in House of Cards. And his portrayal here is just really a knock your socks off unexpected one. He, he plays this drug dealer and yet he's got this deeply compassionate soul to him. Mm -hmm. Um, and he takes in, you know, little, our first version of our Chiron character. And it's, it's never or he always walks this line where when he's about to speak you don't quite believe that he's going to continue on this path of goodness at least <laughs> for me you know there there were moments there's a, there's a moment at a table that, that where this stereotype is stereotype is very very much broken and they're having mm-hmm. a conversation and it's one of the first time that the little character actually speaks he's he's there with um Juan and is it Teresa? Is that her name? Yep. Yep. That's his girlfriend. And, uh, you know, little asks this very tough question. He says, you know, they, why they call me? What does it mean? What does faggot mean? Yeah. And oh my goodness, my heart sunk. I mean, just hearing a child ask that question Mm -hmm. on the screen was, was so tough. And you can see this character of Juan and and this, it's an amazing acting job, but you can Mm -hmm. see him think about it. And, you know, almost go to a different place with his answer. And you then you get to see Teresa give this the subtle look to him like, don't you dare, right? Like, you need to right. answer this differently. And so he does. Um, And I just, I love the way that it turns this on its head. I mean, yeah, he's still, he's still doing a bad thing. He is still a drug dealer. And mm-hmm. he is still supporting uh, this habit that has wrecked, you know, Little's mom's life um, by putting this stuff out on the streets and by selling it. But, you know, when it comes to this human connection, um, his relationship with Chiron is, is pretty incredible. Yeah. And he's, I mean, Ali has this uh, incredible ability within this film to project a kind of like toughness, but a, a gentleness or tenderness to his character um, that, you know, I think, yeah, I you kind of assume that when his character is up on screen that you're just waiting for the moment when he sort of bursts forth in violence, but it never actually presents itself or ever comes up. And he turns into this sort of fatherly figure. And it's like you said, it's this idea of breaking that stereotype of what we think of when we think of a, you know, a black man who is a drug dealer 
um, you know, we assume immediately that they are violent, that they are um, callous and all of these different things. And we, we get to see kind of like, I, I don't want to say like a softer side, but kind of maybe more of his humanity than we would assume. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I don't even think that it's necessarily brought on by the fact, you know, that he's with his girlfriend, Teresa, like he actually takes a caring to this to Sharon and actually, you know, starts to advocate for Sharon um, when he sees that his mother uh, is a, a drug addict, which, you know, plays into this whole incredible, powerful uh, ending of that first act where we don't see him as a character again. Um, but I, I just I, you know, and we can probably get into that a little bit more. But I think that um, it definitely not only is it challenging the this movie challenging with the main character of Sharon kind of challenging some of uh, these identities that we um, kind of, you know, I would even say within film, but I would say just in society, we tend to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of just lump them into a certain category. And I think that he's he's breaking that a little bit by being this father figure while he, you know, he's this tough guy with a, you know, crown on his dashboard and a gun in his in his lap and all these other things. But he's a uh, he's this fatherly type fella to Sharon, who is trying to navigate his own identity in the midst of all of this. Um, you know, and it's so much more complicated than that. And I just, that's what I love about this film is there's a complex layers in this film that, uh, you know, even on second and third and fourth viewings, it just is going to continue to grow richer. And I, I can't wait till I, you know, this was only in theaters in my city for like a week before it was mm-hmm. old. So it's like, I got to see it once and then it was gone and I can't, I can't wait till I can see it again. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely excited to get that chance to see it again and, and, you know, look at it from a different perspective. Now that you have the whole story and you're not waiting to see what happens, but be able to hone in more on the characters and those moments that, that take place. And even, you know, with this idea of stereotypes being broken, even characters like Kevin, the best friend of Sharon um, is very Mm -hmm. similar. You know, you know, this is, this is not just about the main character of Chiron and his, you know, black identity, his gay identity, his masculine identity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's about all of these characters. They they are all experiencing this. Kevin is the only true friend that Sharon has had, and, and he has this, but he's putting forth this face. He's wearing this mask as well, where he can't let his true feelings show. And unlike Sharon, who is awkward about it and doesn't hide the fact that he's awkward, mm-hmm. um. Kevin does. Kevin wants to play the game and even, you know, tells Chiron that at times, you know, he's like, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta fake it sometimes. And that's what Kevin does because that's what you do. That's how you have to survive uh, in this environment, this, this hood that they live in, this, this slum that it is. And, right, you know, and so he, he doesn't allow himself to, be who he really is until way later in the film, obviously until, you know, our third act, uh, when his transformation really begins to happen, it's almost like the reverse. Uh, he and Chiron are on these opposite tracks. And so I, I just love how it, it challenges us in every character that we're seeing to really think about their actions and what they mean. And, you know, do we, how we judge people, do we judge people based on their profession 
Do we judge people based on a stereotype of what we think their mm-hmm. profession is, or do we judge people based on their actual actions uh, and decisions when it comes to human relationships? Sure. And I think that, you know, what I noticed, I think the first act, and I, I, I keep going back to the first act because I think it's extremely powerful in setting up the rest of the stage. Because as you said, Kevin and Chiron kind of almost go on these, these have these different starting paths and, um, you know, I wouldn't even say they dive, they, they kind of are circular in a sense, but I, the Juan, the character of Juan kind of takes Chiron under his wing and he almost says, you know, you got to make something of yourself. There's the, there's that really powerful scene, um, and incredibly well shot scene, uh, where he teaches Chiron how to swim. Oh, um, one of the best scenes of the year. <laughs> really yeah is. and uh, amazingly i was reading up on how they technically pulled off that shot today and i just i i'm impressed beyond all belief that the cinematographer was able to lug the 200 pound camera out into the ocean to be able to get that shot wow uh, it's incredible so he's basically like holding up another human being <laughs> and uh you know aiming it to be able to get this shot um and apparently it was storming as well so oh yeah um, <laughs> they were able to uh, pull all of this off while it was storming. Um, but, you know, there's this at, there's this after they're doing this, you know, he's kind of saying you have to make something of yourself. And, you know, you kind of don't necessarily think Chiron's taking this to heart because when the second act starts, um, you know, and he's a teenager, he really hasn't kind of taken any of that to heart. And you wonder if maybe just I think it's kind of assumed that one and I think it's mentioned in passing that he died at some point. Um, cause they say something about a funeral mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure that they're talking about him. Um, they do, they and, say Juan's funeral. They, they, oh, they do say mm-hmm. Juan's. Funeral. It's called out. Okay. And you know, you kind of maybe have to assume that, um, his death had something to do with maybe his quietness. I mean, obviously along with the fact that his, you know, mother's only grown kind of more abusive and, and more, more under the control of drugs than she was before. But, you know, you you see him as a character not really taking this to heart to make something of himself. But we see that sort of blossom in the third act. But it it's almost counterintuitive device or advice in the in that really Chiron be, doesn't become who he really is supposed to be. That end of the second act, you know, I, I mean, you can call it like the explosive end of the third second act because really mm-hmm. that's what it is. I mean, and it's an exploding chair literally back, mm-hmm. back of another kid. And, you know, he doesn't really take this uh, when he finally takes it to heart. He essentially puts on a mask or becomes a different person than he than who he truly is. You know, he he sort of hides behind that, that notion of making something of himself. He really just makes himself into I mean, literally makes himself into Juan. And I I found that incredibly powerful that he's not really taking he's not really taking the advice the way that maybe wanted intended to take it but it's the way that a lot of us end up taking you know fatherly advice who do we when someone extremely influences us when we're a child or even a teenager for that matter really what we end up we can end up just becoming a copy of that person instead of being truly ourselves and you know it it's really kind of again tied up in these ideas of identity and I just I I found that incredibly compelling, and obviously the third act, which I think deserves kind of a conversation on its own within this conversation, is extremely powerful. And there's a lot of payoff in that third act between Kevin and Chiron. You know, that's 
I, I, I really love that about the movie that it's kind of taking this subtle approach and all of this is very inter it's, it's all very, um, what's the right word I'm looking for. It's not very overt. It's not telegraphed to the audience. It's very subtle. Uh, yeah. it's very subtextual. Um, it's, it's there, but it's not going to spell it out for you. And I found that profoundly interesting compared to where most movies would probably just telegraph all that with a bunch of shouting and dramatic scenes. This movie is very, very um, understated in that way. Yeah, it is. And even in the the triple actors that portray the yeah. Chiron character, you know, they don't necessarily all look alike. But what I found interesting is that it's in their eyes and it's in their facial expressions that if you pay attention, you see the same deep longing and, and, and just the lost feeling that they have out of not being able to feel what their identity is, not really being able to embrace it or not to know it in the beginning. You know, we start with little in that first act, you know, and he gets even the name of the act being or his nickname being little is, is derisive. And, you know, it's given Mm -hmm. him by kids that are making fun of him and it's already, defining how he is perceived amongst his peer group. And, you know, that's even before we realize, you know, he's got this druggy mother that he's got to deal with. (laughs) And it's so hard to watch. It it was, it was tough. I mean, it was very, very tough as a parent, especially to see this child, the freedom to run around and hide in this, this house and just stay there. He's, he's so vulnerable during this time and knowing that, kids grow up like this is painful um, because that's, you know, it, it should be in all of us to put children first and to want to protect the children. And yet, you know, that's not how his life goes. And instead he Mm -hmm. ends up just feeling completely isolated despite these people around him. It's like, he's walking as a ghost through his own life. Mm -hmm. And so I found I found that act particularly powerful, um, as well as the third. The third act is, is like you said, we'll we'll talk about that one in more depth here in a second because it's it's really where it all comes together. And I think I think in the first one, Juan being a part of it was also so strong for me. I mean, he he just has such a from an acting standpoint, his screen presence is awesome. <laughs> I mean, he just can command a scene and. I mean, I'm excited to see what he does in the future as an actor, uh, yeah. Mahershala Ali, that is, because he really is just, he, I don't know. He, he makes me, he makes me wish that he was my father figure in a way, <laughs> you know, I mean, like I'm telling, yeah, I'm talking yeah. about a drug dealer. What am I saying here? But, but that's true. And that's, that's what's important about this. And, and so then we, we roll into this, this Chiron act, which I guess if I had to say there was one act that I didn't like as much as the others, it would be this one. Mm. Uh, it, it's got a lot to say. I think the only moment that we lose some of that subtlety is honestly in the scene on the beach. Yeah. When we see this sexual act, um, in, you know, depicted between Kevin and Chiron and it finally kind of culminates, uh, in this release for him that's been Mm -hmm. coming and coming and coming. And, you know, I, I didn't personally feel like we had to have it, Though in the way that it was given to us, it was still done in a somewhat tasteful manner, more so than I yeah. guess it could have been. 
right. but I felt that, you know, we lost a little bit of the subtlety there where there was so much build up emotionally and in, in, in the faces and in the, the way characters just carried themselves up to that point. And I would have liked to seen that continue, but it, this one is painful because you see, you know, these, this difference in he and Kevin. And of course, Kevin flips things on his head and goes after him uh, to keep his cool status uh, by beating him up, which is, I mean, it's such a yeah. high school thing, right? I mean, I don't oh, know if man. you've seen this happen in your life, but I mean, I've seen this happen. Yeah. I've seen people in high school turn on each other like that. Oh man, I bet any teenager or I mean, anyone who's been a teenager can relate to, you know, kind of being double crossed almost in a sense, or just had their back turned on someone that they really cared about, you know, and this is especially traumatic for Sharon because this is the first person that he's been sort of maybe able to feel like he can really share who he actually is with someone and to have that feeling reciprocated is um, incredibly meaningful for him and then to have it immediately snatched away from him and literally put back in his face with fists you know in this fight to uh, essentially wrap up the second act it's it's heartbreaking and yeah, I mean, it, it can remind anyone. And I mean, it certainly reminds me of, I mean, I can recall, you know, a moment from high school where that kind of happens where you just feel so betrayed. But I mean, this is particularly traumatic because this is, um, you know, him sharing a piece of himself with somebody else and essentially that person throwing it on the ground and stomping on it. And it's an incredibly, I think, I think that may be the biggest payoff, but I really do think that second act, even though it is kind of a little bit weaker, it it's the it's the good connective tissue that creates the tension of that final act, which is incredibly important. And um, you know, I think it it really leads to some uh some powerful uh dialogue between the two of them, uh between Kevin and Sharon in the uh final act. Oh yeah, it definitely does. And it also you know, you're not expecting it. You're not expecting the violent outburst. No, from not him. at all. Uh, you know, it's complete 180 of the character we've seen for the, the movie up until that point. And I right. think there's something really incredible about the way that this is filmed. You, I think you said, I didn't know this, but you said this was based on a play. Is that right? Yeah. So the act structure makes sense to me a lot more now, knowing that this was based on a play. But mm -hmm. because it gives us such gaps in the growth of the characters and in, in, in the years that these characters lived, I think that that works in its favor in a mm. big, big way. Yeah. Um, just going from, you know, that last shot of him, you know, cheering and punching and kicking this guy uh, <laughs> to seeing where he's at now, you know, right. completely different and not having a lot of exposition about how he got from point A to point B or, the fact right. that he, what happened to him in jail, because none of that really matters. We're, we're simply really narrowing in on the key moments in a person's life mm -hmm. that people would look back and say, this is the moment when I began to feel this way, or I began to, this is when I made the decision to choose this path or to turn left or turn right. That's what this movie is all about. It's not trying to tell you the whole story. And I love that. I love that Barry Jenkins doesn't try to, or, or the writer, whoever wrote the, the play in the first place, doesn't try to overindulge by giving us too much of this person's life that we really right. don't need. Um, we just need these moments to connect. They're enough. And, uh, and did you say, 
I think you were telling me offline something too about that Barry Jenkins grew up in the same neighborhood as the playwright. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the playwright's Terrell Alvin McCraney, and he actually, they both grew up in the same neighborhood in Miami. Um, and Jenkins discovered that because McCraney had actually submitted this play um, to different filmmakers, and it ended up getting filtered down to Jenkins, and Jenkins was like, oh, I got I to gotta tell this story. And so, you know, I mean, they made some slight changes. You know, McCraney gets a story credit um, because essentially Jenkins was really, really pushing McCraney to write the screenplay. And McCraney had actually had actually uh, gotten quite good success as a playwright. And so he's like, I don't have time to do it. (laughs) And so he's like, essentially, he gave Jenkins permission to write the screenplay. And so that's why Jenkins has the screenplay credit, um, you know, is because he uh, ended up just, you know, kind of hunkering down and rewriting it a little bit because originally how I guess the play had gone was that the characters are supposed to like talk and interact with one another. Like these three different characters were supposed to speak to one another. Um, he just kind of divided it into this three category or three hmm. acts, which, you know, I mean, like you said, makes total sense if it's, you know, based on a play, it's got different acts. And, you know, I mean, technically it's, it's just like any movie and a movie typically has the first act, the second act and the third act. Without just and, defining it for us with, right, with yeah, text exactly, titles, exactly, yeah, right. Which which is interesting that he chooses to use the the titles and um, you know, even I I haven't really been able to decipher why it was color coded either, um, because each one had a different color um associated with it when it would cut out from the act to the next act there'd be a color in between, um, so I'm not really sure why there was that. But uh, I haven't been able to parse that as to why or I haven't been able to find any info on why he did that. Yeah, I don't know either. I know that I really enjoyed the lighting of this film as part of the cinematography that you were talking about. And that, that yeah. you know, we focus in on that wonderful baptism, baptism like uh, scene there in the water yeah. where he's learning to swim. But overall, I think the way that this film is is shot, uh, there's, there's lots of close-ups on the face of the actors and and really this film is made by all of these actors it's 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 a kind of a bum deal they can't all be nominated for awards because frankly it, it, they're shorter performances but they're all incredible oh yeah um, you know just I, the way I they think handle Ali, i think ali's basically the front runner for the oscar in my opinion for supporting actor supporting actor yeah it wouldn't yeah. it wouldn't hurt my feelings and i know that no. i know that naomi harris who was a miss Miss Moneypenny, I believe, in some of the yep. latest Bond films, which is this yep. was shocking to me when I see her like all cracked out. And I was like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah. Did uh, James go crazy on you? But but her performance as well is just very powerful. And it's 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 interesting because she's playing such a stereotyped character. And I've, I've listened to an interview where she talked about how she was a little bit nervous about doing this. And she had to yeah. be talked into it because it was the one character that didn't really break out of that stereotype that it, it stayed true to what the drug addict mother was. Mm-hmm. Um, and she just gives such a presence to it where you always believe that deep down she cares, mm-hmm. even though the outside of her is showing you something completely different. I always felt in her eyes that it was something that controlled her and she couldn't break free from it. And it's not what she wanted. 
yeah. that she wanted to be able to be the mother that she needed to be. She wanted to be able to understand her child. She says that many times how she just, she couldn't understand him. You know, he, he was hard to bring him up. He wasn't what she expected yeah. and what she was ready for. Mm. And so I felt a lot of her pain in that. And so I understand why she's getting a lot of uh positive awards talk as well. Yeah. It's just, there's an incredible amount of humanity, even though she might be a pretty, not, I wouldn't necessarily say one note because I say, I think the temptation would be to be very one note. There are a lot of temptations in this movie where you could play those stereotypes for dramatic effect, but it was chosen differently to add a much more subtextual layer and a more, what I think is a more human layer mm-hmm. to this entire movie where, you know, Naomi Harris, she cares deeply about her son and she plays it where addiction is essentially is what addiction actually is like, an addict does not choose that lifestyle and can't just break free of it just instantly. That's not how addiction works. And, you know, I, I recently saw a movie at a local film festival here, which was about a, um, we have a pretty bad heroin epidemic in Wisconsin. Oh, wow. Um, and it's talking about addiction and how this, there is a, a heroin addict who died when he was like 25 um, and it was this great documentary um, by a local filmmaker about his life. And he actually journaled his entire addiction before he died. And um, it's this incredibly incredible story of addiction and just really humanizing addiction to where it's like they want to be free of this, but they cannot be free. They want a normal life. They want to be able to care for somebody, but they just can't. And I think that Naomi is able to draw that out without having to be soup like to be able to just kind of, you know, shoot it all out in dialogue. You know, she doesn't have to go, I wanted to be, you know, the grid mother for you and all this other stuff. It's done in much more subtle, much more um, uh, delicate filmmaking touches that Mm -hmm. are just so fantastic. I just, I, yeah, I definitely think she's a, she's a great character in this movie. Um, Still, like I said, it doesn't compare to Juan. I I honestly have to give this to Juan and it, you know, maybe it feels a little unfair that we're kind of giving the short shrift to the main character. Um, (laughs) But I think that they, they managed to provide power um, to this story. Um, whereas, you know, these three different actors that play Chiron are, you know, the, the vessel of the story, they, they add power and a human dimension to this story, which I think is just fantastic and fascinating. Um, yeah, they shape him. I mean, they, they shape that character. These absolutely. Are the, these are the right. people in his life that, that make him what he ends up becoming. And, and, you know, so with that talking about, you know, act three black, which, I love, I love the nickname. I love how, how simple, I love how simple all of his names were, his nicknames were, you know, just one word, little, one word, black. And the kind of nod to the fact that that's what Kevin called him and he always hated it. Yeah. So then yet that's what he's going to adopt as his nickname. And so there he is right out the gate. We see that he's become one and he is just this completely unauthentic character now unauthentic human being he he is he is in no way what we know deep down he is and he's just created this persona with this mask uh that he's gonna wear because this is the way the world's gonna accept him yeah and so he goes through this period of you know there's there's a great scene of him with the the young man who's dealing the drugs for him Mm. and where he's he's like you're short (laughs) and then 
you know, he tells him he's messing with him and we kind of see what I, you know, I think is intended to show us that this is his Juan moment. You know, he's, he's treating this kid just like Juan treated him. Right. You know, and he's thinking that way. And of course, Kevin calls and, and then it's immediate. I mean, it is, it's, it's really powerful even to watch him go through the decision-making process of whether or not to go see Kevin. There were mm-hmm. moments where I didn't know yeah. if he was going to do it. Yeah. You know, even, you know, watching as many films as I do and, and kind of being able to pinpoint what the story is going to be like, I wasn't a hundred percent sure he was going to go or not because the character's not, it's been fleshed out so well that y- you understand why he would not, you understand why right. maybe he doesn't make that choice. Yeah. And of course there he goes, he gets, he sits down in the diner and, Gosh, you know, from that point on, the the movie just grips me. And and that's yeah. when it won me over. That's when everything about uh, Black and Kevin's conversation in the diner um, leading up to the final scene between them is where this movie took to really impact me and my heart in general. And, and it made me feel the empathy. It just came bursting out of me i just wanted to i wanted to give these characters a hug Mm -hmm. yeah and there's those those final the final i I think maybe it's 20 minutes maybe of the movie where he's in the diner yeah just about um, and you know then they go back to i think it's kevin's i don't remember if it was kevin yeah it was kevin's because they were in miami Mm -hmm. they go back to kevin's place um you know there's Immediately, what called to mind, and a, another another podcast picked up on this. Um, the next picture show picked up on this because uh, I picked up on it. Um, is that the third act is seems heavily influenced by Wong Kar Wat Kar Wai's uh, in the mood for love, and Jenkins has said that Kar Wai is uh, one of his major cinematic influences. And you can see this in this final third, just in the framing, in the shots, in the long. Uh, looks in even in the dialogue where they talk to one another and there's there's all these subtextual layers of when they say things there's more being said because you've learned so much about these two characters and their relationship and where they've come from and it's this these it's this longing and this this um desire not just like for each other on a romantic level but i'm saying a desire to be true to who they are as individuals and um, I, I pick up on that because in in the mood for love, if you haven't seen that movie, is probably and I think it was number two on BBC's 21st century modern film uh, list. Oh wow! And it was number two behind Mulholland Drive. And in the mood for love, Wong Kar Wai's movie is this incredibly powerful, very artistic, very stylistic story about um about unrequited love between a pair of people that essentially cannot be together because of cultural expectations and because of their own sense of duty and honor. And you kind of feel this a little bit just because in how we, you know, stereotypically expect men to behave, how we expect um, African-American men to behave. Um, You know, uh, Sharon has become this tough drug dealer and, you know, uh, Kevin is still the player, you know, and is eventually, you know, revealed that he has a child. So he's sort of gone against maybe who he truly is to be who everyone expects him to be. 
And I think it goes so much more beyond their relationship. And I know that you've you made a point to say uh, before the podcast started that this it it would be sort of unfair or a disservice to the film to only think of this movie in terms of its you know the sexual identity of its main character. Mm-hmm. You know, I and I think another connection I made to a, a, re, a somewhat more recent film um, is Brokeback Mountain. Kind of does the same thing where. Uh, Roger Ebert famously said that it would be, you know, uh, it's a uh, gross, uh, a criminal oversimpli- oversimplification to call it just a gay cowboy movie. Right. <laughs> you know, is what people were calling it. And I kind of feel like it would be over. It would be a cruel oversimplification to say this is a movie about two gay men who cannot um, share a relationship because it goes so much deeper than that. Um, it does. And, it, it, you know, and it's it's important I mean, it is important and it is, it is part of the story here that yes, he, they, they are gay men or they are right. confused and, and they do not understand their own sexuality at this point. Um, both of them in different right. ways. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I could take this story to be a best friends story, save for that one event in act two. It literally could be me and my best friend walking through life mm-hmm. together struggling through our own individual paths and ending up with one of us crying with his head on the other one's shoulder. And that's how I connected to it. And I think that Hmm. the fact that we can do that is superb um, because it's important to see it for what it is as well, uh, because these are, these are minorities and groups and, and cultural, uh, the aspects that are not represented in film. They're just, they just mm-hmm. aren't, we don't, right. we don't see this. And we talked about that. Um, and so you really have to be honest and fair about what these characters, who these characters are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think that it's brilliant that at the same time I can connect to it on a personal level. I don't have to be able to relate to it. So I can both empathize with them and then also relate in kind of a, a side way. That's, right, that's exactly. pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think it's incredibly important to note that like when people are seeing this film, that's probably and I think that we just need to admit that that's probably most likely what people are going to see the most mm-hmm. in this film is they're going to see the character, you know, Sharon's sexual identity. But I think that like like you said, I find this movie to be incredibly important because it's an it's a, an opportunity to listen or an exercise in empathy. And, uh, you know, I, I've kind of always grew up on the school of thought. I've, I've grown up in the Midwest all my life. I grew up in the Milwaukee area. So Roger Ebert was always a huge influence on me. Um, and, you know, Roger Ebert kind of coined the phrase that, you know, movies are an empathy making machine. And um, this is a prime example of movies being able to be an empathy creating machine. Um, it's a chance for audiences to listen. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning when we were talking about what audiences were there with us when we were watching these films. So it's these chances for the audience to listen and to be able to connect, not with just the character of Sharon, but the many different cultural groups that he represents. So it's like, you know, just African-American urban reality, you know, all of these different things um, that kind of build up Sharon to who he is as a character. Like there is, there is so much more to him than just the facade that he puts on in act three. Um, we've already known that about him, but 
you know, he doesn't necessarily know that. And I, you know, something that I, I, I think I'd be, uh, remiss to mention is that there's the consistent, um, kind of in the, in the thread of empathy, there's this consistent motif used throughout the movie that I think really incredibly struck a huge chord with me. And actually I realized even now as we're talking about it, it, it goes straight through to the end. Um, you know, there is this motif of food and again, this connects to mm-hmm. in the mood for love for me, because in the mood for love does that too. Whereas in that movie, the two main characters in in the mood for love, the only times that they ever interact at first are at the noodle shop, um, where they get noodles. This one, there's a consistent thread. So in the first act, you know, Sharon, Juan, and Teresa feed Sharon, so they give him, you know, like a plate of chicken and mashed potatoes. And mm-hmm. they feed him and they, they develop this relationship with him by connecting through food. And in the second act, I, I don't, I was thinking like, oh, maybe the second act doesn't have it, but it does because it's the cafeteria is the breaking point between Kevin and Sharon because that bully of Sharon comes up and basically gives Kevin the, you know, basically the speech, like, are you in or out with us? You know, yeah. are, are you with us or are you with him? In not so many words, but it's that cafeteria and, you know, he does Sharon can't sit with Kevin at lunch. So there's that connection again where they don't have relationship together through food. And then obviously in the final act, Kevin makes him something. Kevin's become a chef and makes him something at his diner. And there's this really kind of almost seemingly innocuous moment where uh, Sharon has to take out his grill. Like that's something that we notice about him early on yeah. in act three is that he's got a grill and then he, uh, he, you know, reaches back into his teeth, clicks to the little thing and then pulls his grill out. And that's almost like him taking off his mask, taking mm-hmm. off his fake identity and showing who, and it kind of like exposing himself who he really is. Cause he has to take off his grill, his, which gives him street cred to be able to eat the food that Kevin has made for him. And I think it's this great little innocuous moment and where he is essentially having to um, be vulnerable and connect with Kevin in relationship. And then even at the end, you know, Kevin is he I think he's boiling him water. I think I don't remember. He is, if he's going to make some tea. Something. I believe he was yeah, going to exactly. make some tea. Yeah, exactly. There it is. And so it's like the final connection is like the movie basically ends. They're making tea, you know, and it has this that powerful ending moment where it's just like they they realize that it's like we we can be who we are. And it's, you know, I, I think the line that always sticks with me is he says, you know, essentially Kevin is kind of like, this isn't you, this isn't who you are, you know, and like, and Sharon says, you know, I don't, you don't even know me. And Kevin goes, I don't know you, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's like, oh man, like Kevin's like the only one who really only knows. Only one who does. Are. Yeah. Right. And it's this powerful moment that just destroys Sharon's guards. Like any, any guards that he had up were, were knocked over. And that was the most powerful moment for me. Um, was just that, that little throwaway line of like, I don't know you kind of like a, a rhetorical question, mm-hmm. just fabulous, fabulous movie making. And just a very powerful moment of where the audience is like, Oh Yeah. He is the only one who actually knows him. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah, that ending se- sequence is, you know, one of the best of the year for me. Yeah. I just it it stuck with me hardcore on my drive home, and that's kind of become my tell for the movies that are really impactful for me. Is when I mm-hmm. when I can't stop thinking about them on the way home. When I, you know, when I you know forget them right away, or just 
I, I can have a good time at a film without necessarily chewing on it. But um, this one, that scene in particular had just gut gut punched me. Mm-hmm. And I love, I love that you brought up the food too, because it, you know, even us, you and me, this is an every person thing that we can all relate to. Mm-hmm. Someone making you food is such a universal sign of care. And like yeah. you said, that's what Juan and Teresa do when he comes to visit them for the first time. It's hey, We're going to give you food or we're going to give you a soda. We're going to give you this. We're going to make you something for sustenance. And it's mm-hmm. not going to just fill your body up. It's going to fill your spirit up. It's going to fill your soul up. It's going to make you feel comforted and wanted and cared for. And that's what... Kevin does. And man, it's awesome to see this scene of him making the food because he clearly works in a just, uh, you know, in any old diner cafe. This is not a fancy restaurant, right? No, no, no. And the dish he makes is not a five star meal, but you can see the care he puts into it, sprinkling the herbs on it or the, um, Mm. the different, uh, the, I forgot what he puts on cilantro (laughs) because it's Cuban. So it's got to right. have cilantro, but he, he's, he's very meticulous about how he, you know, frames it on the plate. It's mm-hmm. important to him. It's a big deal for him to yeah. make this meal. And so that, that was a very powerful scene for me too. And I'm really glad that you guys, you guys, I say you guys, meaning you and the next picture show <laughs> picked yeah. up on that kind of motif going throughout the film because I had not made that connection. I'd, I'd picked that up on that, that end sequence in act three, but I'd never really brought it all the way back to the first and then the cafeteria. And when you think about it in those ways, it just enhances it even more. Um, and it, it really shows you the brilliance of the filmmaking and how, you know, Barry Jenkins is becoming a, he's got to be a director to watch at this point. Um, you know, it's a movie that makes you say, well, I have to see this person's next project, no matter what Mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. And he's, he's no stranger to, um, his only other feature length film, um, medicine for melancholy is very similar in the fact that it's this kind of uh, relationship between two people um you know but the the subtext and actually the the dialogue of a lot of the characters is talking about gentrification and you know urban plight and all these different things so he's no stranger to kind of making these connections between telling a personal story but also telling a bigger cultural story um you know, and bringing something to bear that maybe not a lot of people are thinking about. He made, he made medicine for melancholy in like 2007 or something like that. So, you know, he was talking about gentrification, um, you know, in San Francisco, uh, a little bit before, you know, gentrification kind of became something that a lot of people were talking about. Um, so I, I definitely think that he's someone to watch for. I'm, I'm definitely going to seek out. Hopefully uh, his next project will even be more accessible than this one was because Medicine for Mel- Men- Melancholy, I, I had to get it from interlibrary loan just to find the movie somewhere. Oh, gosh, so, yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm glad that he's moving up on the accessibility scale because uh, I'm really interested to see what he does with his next project. Oh, me too. Me too. Well, man, thank you for coming on and talking about this one. I'm glad that we had an opportunity to do this and I'm, I'm really hoping that um, yeah. more and more people will get around to seeing this. If not, you know, immediately I imagine that once the Oscar nominations are announced, mm-hmm. I, I can't really see a world in which Moonlight is not nominated for best picture. Yep. And I think that I don't will, want to live in that world. I don't man. either. I really don't. I don't either. I know. Right. I don't either. But I think that will trigger a lot of people to finally go check this yeah. one out. 
and probably yeah. bring it back to theaters for another short run even. And so I'm hoping that that happens because I think, I think it's a movie that gives us these lessons that we can take away from it and ultimately walk out the door and see the world differently and then choose to live differently because of that. And that is something that is more important than any entertainment factor you get from mm-hmm. just sitting in a theater. So I appreciate you wanting to do this one uh, and coming on. Where can people find you if they want to talk to you online or if they want to get more of your work? I know real world theology, you do a lot of stuff there. So let them know. Yeah, well I am at real world theology. Um, I do, I do a lot of stuff there. (laughs) I do, I do a lot of the writing. Um, I edit a lot of our different, uh, content for every given week. So, uh, Mikey has been very nice over the years to give me kind of free reign to do a bunch of different stuff. So we do all kinds of great stuff. Like, uh, um, we, I edit our, our bi-monthly, every other week column where we do uh, reviewing the classics where we'll pick an old movie from before 1980 and review that movie. Um, You know, top five. So it's a little bit more difficult uh, to accomplish and those kind of come in spurts. So I've been doing top fives and for a while I was doing them every single week. So I've reached a point now where it's kind of like I have to be a bit more specific um, and a little bit more selective with my top fives. And they're very controversial, folks. I've done a lot of them. Let they, me tell you about Josh's top five lists. They, I did go through a season where I was just trying to pick a fight. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I do a lot of those things. I'll be on the podcast every now and then. I try to make more room, though, for other people being on the podcast because we have a, a lot of people uh, that want to be on the show. And so I'm I'm really honored that we've reached a point now where I don't, I kind of only fill in when we need somebody, which I'm, I'm really thankful for. So it's really great to have so many people willing to talk about movies over at real world. So you can find our work at realworldtheology.com. That's R E E L theology, worldtheology.com. And we also have the podcast. You can find that iTunes, Stitcher, a lot of different podcatchers anywhere. Um, I'm on Twitter at Hey, it's that Josh. Uh, that's me on Twitter and uh, since I am an unofficial spokesman for Letterboxd, I am also on Letterboxd, and you guys can find me on there as well. Letterboxd is great. If you don't use Letterboxd, I would suggest using it instantly because it's a chance to see what other people are watching um, and a chance to share some of your thoughts about every single movie that you see. So that's a really great way. That's uh, how a lot of I've connected with a lot of different movie people over the years is through Letterboxd. So it's really great. And um, make sure that you're tuning into uh, Real World Theology towards the end of the month, the beginning of the month. Uh, Blaine and I are working on something that we can't really talk about yet, but we're really both excited for it. So uh, stay tuned <laughs> for that. So Blaine was on earlier this week. He on was. Film, he, he was. I and, tried to get him to spill it. And he wouldn't do it. And no, no, I was wondering if I, I was wondering, you kind of said something about it and I was like, oh, is he going to spill the beans? And I was like, I was, if he had spilled the beans, I would just promote it here. But we'll just we'll just keep it under our hats and we're excited for it. So um, and, you know, obviously, I think this is going to be dropping the same day. So uh, as everyone is listening to this, I will be sitting in a theater watching Rogue One 500 times. Oh, yeah. I can't wait. Well, everybody, definitely check out uh, Josh's work and the stuff that he's doing over at Real World Theology. Uh, They've been a great partner with us and uh, a big supporter of Patrick and I bringing Feelin' Film into existence. Couldn't really be done without 
uh, a lot of the mentorship that Mikey and Josh and those guys that have put that show together and that, that network together um, have given to us. If you want to connect with me further, you can find me all over the internet at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. You can obviously connect with the show at Feelin Film on Twitter, the Feelin Film Facebook page and Facebook group. Uh, if you do like the show, if you enjoy this, think about giving us a review on iTunes. Those really help us out and uh, tell other listeners or potential listeners what you liked about the show and, and why they may want to give it a chance. But that is all for now. Uh, as Josh mentioned, Rogue One Week is upon us, and uh, that's what you will be getting from us after this episode next week. So until then, stay positive. May the Force be with you, and keep <laughs> feeling film. <laughs>